thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we take a look at one of the most revered fighter aircraft to ever take to the skies, the Mitsubishi A6M Type Zero, or as it's more commonly known, the Zero. Let's crank them up. Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly, the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell. Welcome back, everyone. This is Boat, and we're back for another look at Warbirds. Now, we've got a great interview lined up for today with not one, but two guests, But first, a bit of housekeeping as we head into December and a return to Bomber Month. That's right, three episodes on Bombers just in time for Christmas. What could be better? So to start off, we do have some sad news to report. The first item is the tragic loss of an Air Force student pilot flying a T-38C out of Laughlin Air Force Base, Texas. Additionally, two other pilots were also injured in the mishap, one critically. Now, I'm recording this on November 20th, and there's still no official determination on cause, nor have the names of the pilots involved been released. But I did want to pass our condolences on to the family of the student pilot and our wishes for speedy recoveries for the other two pilots involved. And with that, we also must mention the loss of the British F-35B on the 17th of November. Fortunately, the pilot was able to eject and was recovered in short order, and the investigation is underway. However, we don't have a cause yet for this mishap at this time either. You know, as we always say, this can be a dangerous business, but hopefully something good will come out of the safety investigations when they're all said and done and they'll be able to mitigate as many potential risks as possible in the future, despite the risky nature of the business. But moving on to brighter news, Jello released Amusing last week on watches, and specifically a sentimental story related to his personal one. So if you haven't gone over to the website to read it, I highly recommend it. And in line with that, we also had a bit of fun with all of you over on Instagram as well. So thanks to everyone that participated by offering up your recommendations on what you all wear. From Apple Watches to Rolexes and about 15 or 20 other types I'd never heard of in between, you all have very impressive and, dare I say it, expensive taste in outerwear. I guess that really just means we all need to up our watch game here on the show and maybe see if we can do some kind of fighter pilot podcast bulk buy. If you're interested in it, let me know. But changing gears, we also had some feedback on our last couple of episodes that we thought you all might want to hear as well. So from the Light Attack episode, number 124 earlier this month, we discussed Exercise Bright Star in Egypt, and I've never even heard of the exercise, and neither Jello nor I had ever participated in it, but we did have a listener write in who wanted to remain anonymous, but they did say that it is still happening and a little bit of a break with COVID and everything, but he had recently participated in it from what he described it as. It was a very cool time, and everything that we discussed on the episode itself made it sound like it was a pretty amazing experience. So thanks for uh, letting us know, and uh, hopefully more people get to experience uh, great stuff like that in the future. And from our latest episode on the Buccaneer, number 125, Tim from the UK wrote in to suggest Roland White's book, Phoenix Squadron. 
So now if you remember, when Jello had discussed notoriety, like we normally do, he didn't have the intel that Roland White had already written a book. So thanks for that, Tim. We'll check it out. And our last bit of feedback from the Buccaneer episode is from Jonathan Helm, who wrote into the show regarding Jello's comment about his guest JS being in the RAF and therefore wouldn't have landed on a carrier. But John added that the Royal Navy was reaching the end of its conventional flying aboard HMS Ark Royal carrier in late 1970s. And more and more RAF aircrew were flying for the Navy because the Navy didn't want or have the need or ability to replace those who were leaving. So thanks for the info, Jonathan. We wish we had all of the knowledge and context of the situations when we go to record. But unfortunately, there is just way too much information out there for us to know. And that's, you know, frankly, why we have all you smart listeners out there to help fill us in on all the gaps and provide us this feedback. So thank you for that. But now moving on to questions. And we only have one in the old mailbag this week. And it comes to us from Craig Hagenbrook. I think I got it right, but Craig, I apologize if I gooned it up again. Jello likes to throw me the more challenging names, I guess we'll call it. But Craig asks, when the U.S. exports military aircraft to allies and other countries, do they make ambassadors of the purchasing country or countries sign a document stating that if they're going to receive said export aircraft or equipment, that they will not wage war or do anything nefarious against the U.S. government or its military? And so, Craig, I am not smart in the process, and so I... uh, pulled the audience of uh, former guests and friends of the show who might have a little more exposure to it. And our first is from T-Day. And he said that although there may be stipulations for buying U.S. military hardware, they are negotiated at State Department levels. And so when they are delivering said aircraft to the country, they're not really briefed on specifics of it. And then we also asked friend of the show, Skip Arney, and he added that he wasn't sure if there was such an acknowledgement and a letter of acceptance or LOA that a senior representative for the receiving country would sign but that the LOA would be the start of the contracting process by NAVAIR or their Air Force counterpart, and that there would also be some congressional approvals required for the more expensive or high-profile pieces of equipment like fighter aircraft. And additionally, there is a standing congressional policy that the Department of State manages, which delineates which nations can receive what equipment. So, for example, Country X can receive tanks, but they can't receive fighter aircraft, or Country Y can receive fighter aircraft, but they can't receive certain types of munitions like missiles or bullets or something like that. So Craig, I hope that clears it up for you. The uh, art of statecraft, as the movies like to say, is a a fine one. Hopefully that gives you a little more insight into that process. Well, I'm all out of announcements. I'm all out of feedback and I am all out of questions. So let's jump into the interview. Now, a couple of notes ahead of time. First, I don't mention the owner of the aircraft, nor where you might be able to see them and their aircraft coming up at the requests of my guests. And it's nothing nefarious on anyone's part. It's just part of the agreement between them and the owner of the aircraft that they don't mention anything like that. Second, you all asked a bunch of questions and I did my best to get them asked in the interview, but I failed to do so. You know, it is a challenging thing navigating a uh, interview and trying to get specific questions in there. So I did the best that I could, but I wasn't able to to get them all in there. So I did fill in some gaps after the interview is over. So please stay tuned for that. But enough nonsense. Let's get to it. And I'll see you on the other side. So about a month ago, I posted an image on Instagram, which displayed our most recent warbird, the Hawker Hurricane. And I wrote that we'd be back for another look at history from a completely different direction this month. Well, we are back, as you can plainly hear, and we are definitely looking at warbird history from a completely different direction, that of the Empire of Japan and the Mitsubishi A6M Zeke, or as it was affectionately known, the Zero. And to help us do that, I've brought in a couple of warbird pilots who fly for a private collection here in the United States, which includes one of the only five flyable Zeros in the world, 
amongst a host of other warbirds of the era, Mr. Mark Murphy and Mr. Charlie Lynch. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Trevor. Thank you for having us. Well, I'm very excited. This is a pretty big honor for me. I don't know anything about the Zero, so you guys are going to educate me. And I know the listeners are chomping at the bit to hear a bit more about the Zero because I think I've gotten more questions about this one airplane than any other airplane that I've done so far. And so with that, we like to first start out with who we're talking to. So Mark, I'll start with you, where you were from, where you went to school, kind of what's your flying history, and, and how did you get involved in flying warbirds? Uh, so I was born and raised in upstate New York and uh, grew up on a 4,000-foot grass strip. My father taught me to fly at 14 in the Piper Cub, and then I worked my way up from there to the Stearman, to the T-6, and then eventually our family bought a P-51 Mustang. From there, I went into the air show circuit as well as the teaching circuit. The teaching really grew to doing a lot of Warbird checkouts. I've done 23 P-51 Mustang checkouts as well as a dozen or so various other ones in the Corsair or Spitfire and the Japanese Zero. Then from there, I was able to do some international work with Warbird collectors. And it just sort of grew unintentionally from just loving airplanes to it's basically what I am doing full time now. So it's been a great, great ride. And I guess one of the culminations that we're here to talk about today is the fact that I get to fly the Japanese Zero, one of five flying in the world, and probably one of two that are actively flying in the world. That's a uh, pretty impressive history. Was it kind of love at first sight with aviation for you, or did you kind of forced into it because your dad was interested? I never had my first airplane ride because it was always, I just grew up in the back of airplanes and we've had various ones. But I remember when I got the keys to the Piper Cub, I was so in love with that, that before school started, I would wake up at six o'clock in the morning, I would pull the Cub out and I would go fly the Cub every morning for about a half hour and then go to school. All that was going great until one day I got a little ambitious and I buzzed the school with the airplane. And of course, there was no denying who did it. The principal called my father. You know, it was funny because I did get a little chewing out, but it was also a a little bit of an attaboy. So um, I imagine in today's world, that would be much worse, the consequences, than it was back when I did it. But. But yeah, so it's been a love and a passion of mine for my entire life. Yeah, I think we've seen enough pictures in the news on uh, shapes being drawn in the skies and otherwise to uh, <laughs> go down the path of uh, it might not be the smartest thing in the world of the uh, digital camera everywhere. So Exactly. Well, very good. And I did want to acknowledge uh, Mo over at Warbird Digest Magazine. He was the one that got us connected. How did you meet Mo and the Digest Magazine? Actually, I've worked with Tim Savage through Warbird Digest and uh, Greg Moorhead for, boy, it's been 10, 15 years. I really got to know him when I flew for the air show team called the Texas Flying Legends. Oh, yeah. I did that for about five years where we traveled the country with a Warbird collection from Texas. So I'm not trying to put my name out there for anything, but certainly that got the recognition of who we were as we were flying with that collection. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I'm excited for you to be here. And uh, Charlie, let's turn to you now. Same questions. How'd you get your start and um, where are you living and all that good stuff? And where did you get uh, connected to Warbirds? 
Well, my path was a little different than Mark. I'm the only person who has the aviation disease (laughs) in my family. So I was born in New York, moved out to San Francisco as a kid, and then maybe junior high or so moved back to the East Coast of Connecticut, up to upstate New York, uh, not too far from Mark for college. And then my first job took me back to San Francisco and then down to LA from earliest times I can remember, I had the passion and love of aviation. I just didn't have mentoring or money to make it happen. So when I was down in LA, I actually learned to fly, earning my private pilot's certificate in a helicopter out at Hellstream and John Wayne, which, you know, you go between there and Long Beach, it's amazing that somebody would let, you know, young guy solo helicopters in that busy airspace. So it was great fun, but I did that in a very short period of time because at that point I was going back to Cornell for a graduate degree and I wanted to get that accomplished. And then when I was back at school, I got my fixed wing add on and all the ratings, multi-instrument, all that good stuff. Then moved to Ohio for a couple of years for sort of a second job that turned into the job I'm still in today, many, many years later, and really got into airshow flying. And we wound up moving back to Connecticut because of job and everything. Really got into the airshow flying more heavily. And in fact, that's where Mark and I met. So I was flying for a formation aerobatic team and we met up at, I think it was Keene, New Hampshire little tiny show, whole lot of nice people. And we met Mark and his father. Mark was flying the 51. Great stick, nice guy. You know, we just sort of developed a friendship from there that has, for me, led to a whole lot of things. And for Mark, probably a whole lot extra work having me on his wing. (laughs) But, you know, from there, the real Warbird experience first started with my wonderful but somewhat crazy wife, making me buy a Grumman TBM Avenger, the big torpedo bomber that President Bush flew, because she wanted a cool family airplane. So, (laughs) you know, you come taxiing up in this monster airplane, you fold the wings, you open the Bombay doors, you're looking cool. Lower crew compartment door opens, the wife, the kids, the dog all hop out, and well, so much for being cool. (laughs) It was our flying minivan, wonderful airplane, a whole lot of fun, and that opened the doors to some other fun flying. And as Mark has had some opportunities come along, he's been kind enough to let me tag along. So thanks to him, I get to fly the Corsair and the Spitfire and the Zero and the Mustang. And we've had a whole lot of fun together. Well, those are words I don't think I've ever heard. My wife made me buy an airplane. (laughs) So that's definitely a first. Well, the nose art is even called She's the Boss. I have heard that. She made me buy it. I had all the reasons. (laughs) Yeah, well, so we would go to air shows and the wives or girlfriends drag the poor guy under the nose of the airplane to take a picture with the nose art saying She's the Boss. (laughs) There you go. It's a good second uh, income stream, if anything, you know, five bucks a pop or something. That's great. That's right. Well, that's great. That's a great story. I'm glad you guys are uh, connected. I'm glad that we have you guys both on the show today because I think you guys both have a great perspective from various backgrounds and obviously flying or having flown multiple warbirds. I think it's a great perspective to have when it comes to the Zero because it is one of those airplanes that kind of lives in this state of lore. One, because obviously it's from a foreign country. Two, because there just aren't that many of them flying around. I think it's extremely exciting for me to be able to get to hear a little bit more about it, especially because really all we get to see is what we you know see in movies or hear 
in stories and that kind of thing. So with that, let's get into the history of this thing to start out and we'll kind of see where the rest of the conversation takes us. But when I've done my initial portion of research for the show, it's labeled as the Mitsubishi A6M Zeke, as it was named by the Allies. But then it's also got the name Zero. And for whoever wants to start out with the answer, let's start with that. What's with all the names? What's the history behind that one? I think they were just trying to confuse everybody because you're right, Trevor. The Allies called it the Zeke. And oftentimes it was actually also confused early on with the Oscar because they both look very similar. The Oscar, the Japanese actually called the Hayabusa. This Zero, most of the time they actually called it the Zero Sen. And the Zero comes from the nomenclature of the year it was built. So it first flew in 1940, but using the Imperial calendar of Japan, that was actually the year 2600. So that zero on the end is zero. And so you'll hear it interchanged a lot between Zeke and zero in a lot of the history books or stories or movies, one and the same. Okay. Makes sense. Different calendars, different cultures, all that good stuff that definitely uh, connects the dots. Do you have any idea why? So why did they put this airplane out there? And obviously we can look through history and see what happened in World War II and everything. And, and at that time, you know, later 1930s, the storm clouds of war were brewing and whatnot. But do you know why this type of aircraft was developed or what the initial requirement for it was? Yeah, it's certainly, I mean, if you look at this period, and this is what's so fascinating, especially for Mark and I, if you look at the generational development in a very short period of time from the mid to late 1930s through the mid 40s, you know, the end of the war, basically, you look at the early aircraft planes like the Claude and the Nate and the Oscar that were flying primarily in China, Manchuria during that whole sort of expansionist period for Imperial Japan. The technology, as it evolved, the Zero was state of the art. Mark and I are very fortunate to get to fly a Mark I Spitfire. In fact, I think it's the only Mark I flying in the States. And if you look at the technology and systems in that airplane versus the later Marks, the later models of the Spitfire, it's night and day. And if we compare the Zero we fly and its very manual systems to, you know, the late model Corsair or the P-51, it's amazing to see the differences. So the Japanese needed a long-range, single-seat fighter capable of operating off aircraft carriers, and this was primarily an Imperial Japanese Navy aircraft. They had some design specifications following on a plane that was the A5M that Nakajimi built. And when it was issued, Nakajimi took a look at it and said, it's impossible. You can't meet those specifications. The folks, the designers at Mitsubishi said, yes, we can. But in order to do so, we have to make this plane as light and as efficient as possible. And it is light. You know, Mark and I were on a piece uh, on the Smithsonian Channel. And Mark, why don't you share a little bit about what you had you know, shown in terms of how light it is and walking on the plane and those things? Yeah, so I'll jump in here. And the Smithsonian came out and they did a piece on the Zero. So we met them out there. My role for that was to show some of the characteristics of the Zero and why it was so maneuverable. And one of the things that I did is they, they brought the camera in close and I went to the tail and I just put one finger on the skin in the tail and I just lightly pushed on it. And imagine a soda can that, you know, is rigid. People can stand on a soda can as you can imagine, but then if you push in on it, the whole thing collapses. 
Yeah. I think the skin of the Zero is similar to that. As he zoomed in on the camera and put the bright light on there, you could see as just my finger how much I can move that metal. That was one of the biggest characteristics of the Zero and its maneuverability was the lightness of it. The other thing is the horsepower of the engine. Now, the one that we're operating, it has a Pratt & Whitney uh, 1830 on it. And the reason that we've put that on is just for reliability and parts. You know, obviously, we want to operate these things safely. The original Sakai engine was about 950 horsepower. So you take an extremely light airplane, you put 1,400 horsepower on it, and just the maneuverability and the climb Uh, The performance that this airplane gets is unbelievable. I do have some vivid descriptions of what it's like to fly the airplane, but let's continue on with the history first, and then we'll uh, go into what it's really like to fly this airplane, which I'm sure your uh, listeners are chomping at the bit that they can't wait to hear. Yeah, absolutely. They are. And just as a side note to that conversation on the weight piece, the F4F Wildcat was kind of the U.S. standard aircraft at the time. When fully loaded... With the notes that I have here said that the zero was about 2,360 kilograms, about 5,200 total pounds, which is about 1,260 kilograms or 2,780 pounds lighter than the Wildcat. And so it just goes to show you how much a difference the weight really was. And they even talked about some top secret aluminum alloy that they made, like you talked about with the skin and being able to push that stuff. Super great, super strong and more ductile than the other uh, alloys. But it comes at a price. Yeah, it always does. And it's more prone to corrosion and a lot more brittle. And that may come into play later here. But well, yeah, that's great. Charlie, anything else to add on the variants? I know you kind of mentioned a few there. They went through a laundry list of variants, I think like seven or eight different types. They did. And that's some of the challenges we get asked questions. And a lot of it depends on the year it's built and the variant. The reality is it came down really to two manufacturers, one being Nakajimi and one being Mitsubishi. And much like we had here in the U.S. General Motors built more TBMs than Grumman built TBFs. As it turned out, Nakajimi wound up building more of the Zero than Mitsubishi did. There were also, there was a training version that they had like 500 of, a really cool plane that I don't know if any are still in existence, but I think it's the Roof or Roofy was basically a float plane version of the Zero. And obviously, you know, adding a float degrades the capabilities quite a bit, but it still was a very effective fighter. And it surprised, especially, you know, you mentioned the Wildcat. I'm a big fan of the Wildcat and the P-40, for example, because you look at planes that really held the line for the first 18 months or so of the war that we didn't have, you know, Corsairs and Mustangs and Hellcats and all that. When we compare the Wildcat, as you did to the Zero, I think that's a better analogy than the later fighters because we spent a lot of time with designing and manufacturing aircraft where the Japanese, I just finished a great book called I Will Run Wild. And that's actually a quote from Admiral Yamamoto, who basically said to the Imperial General Staff, I will run wild for six months and then all bets are off. Yeah. You know, they didn't have the production capability. They didn't have the training and the material support that we had. So one of the reasons that we were successful with P-40s and Hellcats is you had people like General Claire Chenault, 
figuring out how to fight against an airplane that had a lot of strengths over the P-40. We had a independence, if you will, and you're a military guy, you know, it's, you know, yes, sir, no, sir. But we have this heritage of saying, all right, how do we employ this weapon? How do we take advantage of it while minimizing its weaknesses? So the famous Jimmy Thatch, Butch O'Hare, O'Hare International Airport is named after. These guys earned their reputation flying what many thought was the inferior wildcat against the Zeros. And they figured out we don't dogfight with these planes. We don't turn with them. You make slashing attacks. You use the thatch weave defensively to protect each other in an element during a fight or during even transition. So as much as these planes are something to be appreciated, sort of an unsung aspect of all this was the training command, the material command, the production we had on the home front, and then the sort of innovation and independence that has been demonstrated by our frontline warfighters back then. You know, these guys said, great, that's the book, throw it overboard. We're writing a new book because this isn't working. And I think that's one of the reasons we met with success after a very tough initial few months. And obviously the shock and awe, the surprise of Pearl Harbor, and then the chaos in the aftermath of that is a prime example of how all that response. I would even suggest, because, you know, that's a great starting point. You talk about Pearl Harbor and this plane came as a shock. Now we did have some intelligence from the American volunteer group, Claire Chenault's group in China, right? Of this airplane. Now they do often confuse the Oscar that I was talking about, that Nakajimi KI-43, the Hayabusa, with the Zero, because they look very similar. But if your listeners ever get a chance to be out in Hawaii and they can go, you know, a lot of them obviously visiting the Arizona where the war sort of started for the U.S. and the Missouri that's moored right down Battleship Road from it where it all ended with the signing of the peace documents is very moving and brings a lot of meaning to us flying these airplanes. But there's an incredible aviation, the Pacific Aviation Museum that's on Ford Island, which the Japanese obviously attacked heavily, where you can go through the museum, but you still can see the bullet holes and the scars and everything else on the control tower and on the ramp. And to see that, it gives me goosebumps even talking about it, knowing that Mark and I then get to fly this plane. But the strategic advantage this plane provided. We didn't talk about the range of plane as we were sort of talking about why this plane was so different. This plane surprised us to no end because it showed up at places, you know, the Guadalcanal campaign. These guys flew from Rabaul down to Guadalcanal. And this plane had a range, depending on how it was flown, anywhere from 1,100 miles to 16 or 1,700 miles. I can't imagine sitting in that seat that long on a parachute (laughs) and (laughs) this plane would show up at places and our people thought there must be carriers around or they had some secret land base because how do these fighters get into this area yeah and one of the attributes of this plane was its extraordinary range when the engine was operated the right way yeah i've got notes here that at combat range a radius of just over a thousand miles and then in general over uh, 1,900 if you're not trying to, you know, get to someplace in a hurry and kind of milk on the, uh, the gas there. Cruising uh, about 330 miles per hour, give or take. Even that's, yeah, that's optimistic. Yeah. <laughs> Mark is smiling here. Yeah, so I'll touch on that. Yeah. One of the flying characteristics that 
Charlie and I found out very early in flying the Zero is this airplane is absolutely amazing at low airspeeds. You know, as we flew it with other airplanes in our fleet, you know, we might go up and play a little or uh, dogfight a little bit. And below 200 miles an hour, I can loop it. I can do a half a Cuban just with the power to weight ratio underneath 200 miles an hour. I don't think any other U.S. airplane could come close to dogfighting with me. But above 200, the stick pressure starts to get heavy. Okay. And all of a sudden, that maneuverability goes away. And about 220, it's actually starting to get difficult to fly. Oh, wow. And a lot of people would never realize that. You'd think, oh, the faster you go, the more maneuverable. So its happy place is 180 to 200 miles an hour. That is where this thing is just shines. One of the unique features that I found out about this airplane at doing some, you know, surface aerobatics with it is that this is one of the only or is the only warbird that I've ever flown doing aerobatics where I gain altitude after I finish a maneuver. So I might do a loop and I got to pull the throttle back to get back down to show center. I'll do a Cuban or a barrel roll. And on the way down, even though I'm doing it at cruise power, you would think, oh my goodness, you know, I got to maintain this energy. No, I'm coming downhill. I'm pulling back the power because I'm going too fast. It's just, oh, wow. it's a crazy experience to fly an air show routine where we always do our high energy, uh, you know, uh, vertical maneuvers first because you're losing energy in a Corsair or P-51 or something. But this airplane can just go and go and go, you know. So that's one of those really unique things that as I first flew the airplane, you just noticed like, wow, I feel like I'm, they wanted me to put the gear up before I got to a hundred. So I take off, I'm watching the airspeed and all of a sudden to maintain a hundred, my angle of climb is just extreme. I look out and I'm like, holy cow, I feel like I'm going straight up <laughs> and then get the gear up and then you can wow. level off and uh, accelerate to 200 very quickly. So one of the really unique flying experiences that I've had with the zero. That is unique. I don't think I've heard that before. And you touched on the flight controls and feeling heavy and everything. And as I kind of mentioned before we started chatting, we have some Patreon subscribers that ask some questions. So we have a bunch, like I mentioned earlier in the show, and one of them comes from Robert Hosterman. And he asked about the flight control services and it feeling heavy during high-speed flight. And you touched on it there, but why wasn't a hydraulic booster ever installed to compensate for this throughout the course of the generations? And it's a great question, Robert. All of this and those attributes that Mark was just talking about, it is like flying an aerobatic airplane. It is so different than a typical warbird. The reason they had no hydraulics is everything was about weight and maneuverability. And at those lower speeds, which were the speeds of fighters of that time, you didn't need boosted controls. You didn't need the higher speeds and they wanted to save weight. So as much fun as it is flying this plane at air shows, and I had the great pleasure of flying with our good friend, Greg Shelton, who has a Grumman Wildcat, which is really the almost direct opposite in our fleet from the Zero. And Greg is a superb pilot. You know, if you turn on Greg, the fangs come out in a heartbeat. <laughs> and I love Greg, but I could just shot him down four different times within one turn. You know, the Zero oh. is so maneuverable. You know, I hate to show you what goes on behind the curtain. But when we're doing some of those shows, the pilots are talking to each other to make sure that we're positioned properly and we're over show center and all of that. 
And there were multiple times Greg was having to say, hey, hey, you know, don't turn so hard. Don't pull so hard. <laughs> and if there weren't responsible adults in the crowd and the FAA and everything, I probably would have turned on them in a heartbeat. But, <laughs> you know, this all comes at a real sacrifice. This plane had no armor protection for the pilot. It had no self-sealing fuel tanks. You know, the section leaders had radios. Most of them did not even have radios. There are accounts of flights of American and Japanese planes passing with a Japanese not even realizing it and not able to communicate to each other, that allowing the Americans to get a better up-sun, higher-altitude positioning to attack the Japanese, and the Japanese had no idea. One person may have seen it, and he couldn't get the signals fast enough yeah. to his squadron mates. So this maneuverability is fantastic, but it's a one-trick pony. You know, if you talk about at an air show, I'll take Greg any day in the zero. If we actually have guns loaded, I'm hitting the silk. I'm out of there. That Grumman is a flying tank. And that's where guys like O'Hare and Thatch learn to use that maneuverability. There's a great book out there written by um, Sakai. I've drawn a blank on his last name called Samurai. And he was a very famous Japanese pilot who survived the war and had some great impressions. And he talks about attacking a wildcat And I think he may have been out of 20 millimeter ammunition. All he had was what we call the 30 caliber ammunition. And he expended all of it shooting this wildcat down and it still didn't go down. And he, I guess, flew up next to the pilot, saw it was all tattered, but still flying, saluted and banked away because he was out of ammunition and wildcat kept flying on. I guess at that point, you don't really want to try to go ram it with your airplane, especially uh, after all the abuse it's already taken. So That's right. That's right. Man, crazy. Well, let's go back to a little bit of the weight and stuff. So we talked about the self-sealing fuel tanks and little to no armor at all throughout all the different variants. And maybe that might have changed as the war went on or, or something like that, but it uh, didn't look like it from the history books that I was able to read through. So with that, what about the landing gear? Now, I know current Navy aircraft in the u.s navy and i'm sure around the world as well they've got really big beefy kind of landing gear did they do any sort of modifications either initially and that just kind of was the way it was or did they change it throughout the course of the the war as they uh, adapted those or, or essentially created those for the carrier operations so i'll take this one one of the first impressions of the landing gear and operating the landing gear probably your listeners may or may not have ever heard this story, but I'll share it. So to operate the landing gear in all American airplanes, it's just up and down, just pretty simple. Zero has a neutral, and then you have to push it up or down to activate the hydraulics. So similar to maybe a T6 with a power push, but the power push on a zero is actually the gear handle. Okay. So if I want to activate the flaps, for example... I have to move the gear handle up or down to turn the hydraulics on, and then I can move the flaps. You got to concentrate because you don't want to accidentally put the gear down or up, depending on what you want to do with the flap handle. If I take off with some flaps, I pull the gear handle up, I have to get the flaps back up, then I have to put the gear handle back in neutral. So the biggest thing about the gear is when I'm coming in for landing, I have to put the gear handle down that puts the gear down. Then I have to grab the gear handle and pull it back up into neutral. That is probably for a pilot. One of the scariest things that you can do 
is know that you put the gear handle down and now you're pulling the gear handle back up. You know, so obviously we have some modern uh, indications as far as some gear lights, but we also have on the wing tip and the wing, there's an indicator of the gear and the position, but you know, it's not a problem, but that was also an example of saving weight as far as a more complicated hydraulic system, but there's not much to it. And the actual hydraulic tank or hydraulic reservoir is about, I think it's a quart. I mean, it's just such a small amount of hydraulic fluid. So the tailwheel sometimes doesn't always come up because of this limited amount of hydraulic fluid. So the main gear will come up. Sometimes it'll come up and then it won't lock. So you put it back in neutral and you look and one of the legs fell back down. So as far as operation, it is not ideal. It's not always consistent, you know, so as a pilot, it's an extra step that we have to be aware of. Did the gear come up? Yes. Did it stay up? Yeah, let's check it. Or Charlie would be flying next to me and say, no, you got one hanging. And then you have to reset it. And sometimes we would do a flight where the tailwheel would not come up at all. Other times we recycle and then everything comes up. So it's not that I think it's dangerous. It always comes down, which is what we really want. But when we're on the ground, Another weight-saving part of this airplane is how small and skinny the gear legs are. And so I have to be very careful as far as operation. We're light on the brakes. Even when we do a run-up, if I bring it up to 17, 1800 RPM, you can almost feel the gear rocking forward and you can see the wings wrinkle a little bit. So On a lot of warbirds, I'll do a barrel check. So I'll bring it up to 30 inches just to check the motor. You can't do that on the Japanese Zero just because I'm so afraid of putting all that stress and leverage, I guess, on the little tiny gear legs that come out of there. And then as far as how it's held on, we just are very ginger with the gear, I guess. But uh, it's held on by, I think, eight bolts that... I guess you would call it a three-inch, four-inch shaft, and they just meet, and they're held on by eight bolts. And I look at that, and I'm like, you know, an off-field airplane, even or off-field landing, even on rough grass strip, I think it wouldn't take much to break that off. So it's able to handle the pressure, the impact, if you will, from landing on a carrier type of thing, but any sort of adverse force from something other than straight up and down, essentially, is potentially a real harrowing kind of situation. Yeah, you would never want to sideload this gear. I don't think it would take much at all. So if you didn't land it perfectly straight, you sideloaded it a little, I think it'd be very easy to collapse a gear on this. But that's part of why the Japanese airplane performed so well is because everything was light, even the gear. I guess it was good they put it on a carrier because then the runway turns into the direction of the wind for you. So that part's good. Charlie, what were you about to say? You know, one of the nice things about it is that it's a very wide stance. So the gear is quite tall. It's a big airplane compared to a lot of its contemporaries, and it's because of the length of the landing gear, which takes you by surprise. But being as wide as it is, it really is a very easy airplane to handle. Landing is easy, uh, takeoff, crosswinds. It has good control authorities. Well, you know, Charlie, that's why I let you fly it is because of the wide (laughs) landing gear. (laughs) Because I make it look so good. Yes. Uh, My good friend, Mark Murphy, folks. (laughs) Um, No, I think he lets me fly it because it has a solid rubber tailwheel that is slightly softer than concrete. 
So on grass, no worries. On a runway, especially with grooves or seams or whatever, it's just this bang, 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 bang as you go down the runway. The other interesting thing, unlike the other planes that we get to fly, well, no, actually the Spitfire is this way too, but the tailwheel is free castering. You can't steer it and it doesn't lock. So while the Corsair, for example, and the Mustang both can be locked in a straightforward position, no such thing with the zero, but the zero takes off so quickly. It really doesn't matter. You know, as Mark was saying, you know, my first takeoff, you're like, okay, we're going through 3000 feet and we're not off the end of the runway. It's just incredible. And in fact, that 1830 engine that we have on it is almost too much power for the airframe. Well, that's a good segue, I think, into what is it like to fly? And obviously, Mark, you've alluded to some certain points of it, and you both have talked about moving it around the ground. And that's kind of the theme, it feels like, with Warbirds is the taxiing. Like that always is a kind of one of those, everybody likes to talk about the taxiing thing because obviously the tailwheel and a little bit of uniqueness when it comes to moving airplanes around. But let's talk about what it's like to fly. We covered a little bit of the heaviness of the controls above 200 knots, but in general, Mark, we'll go with you. What's that experience like and relate it to other things that other people might know? We've talked about the P-51, the P-38, and the Hurricane. So maybe we can give some comparisons to those for anything you've flown. Yeah. So uh, maybe I'll start by describing what a typical flight feels like, and then we can compare that to some other aircraft. So as far as taxiing, one nice feature about this airplane, it's got a nice lever that makes the seat go up and down. So I usually raise the seat all the way to its highest position, so you get a pretty good forward visibility, unlike other warbirds where you have to do the S-turn. You still can a little bit, or I can raise the seat all the way up, and I can pretty much see right in front of me. So that really helps with taxing out to the runway. Again, on the run-up, very careful with how much power I'm putting because of how much leverage I'm putting on the gear. And then once we taxi out to the runway and line up, I don't even use the full power available for that 1830 engine. So I'll take off. I could go up to 42 to 45 inches comfortably all day long with that engine. Usually I'm at 35 inches and I'm already, like Charlie says, climbing through 3,000 feet by the end of the runway. I immediately back it off to about 25 inches and 1,800 RPM. That's sort of the low, low cruise for that engine. And that's what we actually climb it with because it just does not need all that power. Yeah. If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Aircore Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Aircore Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Aircore Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. Most of the time when we're exercising the airplanes or practicing for a show, Charlie and I will go out as a two ship. 
So I'll be in the air waiting for him to catch up because he took off in the Corsair and uh, he went way, way down. And I'm at 3,000 feet already waiting for him. But once he comes in, obviously he's got to slow down his aircraft to the speed that I'm at. And then we'll just do some gentle turns back and forth. And then the claws might come out a little bit. Uh, I might say, all right, see ya. And I, I just pull straight up and I could be on his tail in a half a turn. And it's kind of fun. That's because I let him, Trevor. Yeah. Oh, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> and one thing that I could never do, this is why I think the uh, Japanese aircraft lost the war, is if he came at me with speed and then turned away, by the time I turned and had a gun sight on him, he's gone and out of range. There's just no way that the Japanese Zero could keep up with that tactic. So at slow speeds, it's not even a fair fight. But if he comes diving in with that Corsair or the Mustang or you know any of the others at 300 miles an hour, which you could do easily with one of those aircraft, there's nothing that Zero could do about it. The hit and run tactic and run. obviously proved very effective. Right. Yeah. And it's one of those things that if you look at our air show routines, starting, you know, a loop in the Corsair, you're at 325 and it's fingertip pressure. That plane will go wherever you want to point it. I can't imagine we could ever get the zero up to that speed and not make a smoking hole in the ground. Yeah, so when no. we do air shows and there's times where we'll each fly different airplanes, but we did one fairly recently and I was in the Corsair, I would make the outbound away from show center. And as I'm trying to make the turn, and of course we build some safety margins in because we're at low altitude and we want, don't want to G it up too much. He actually pulls power back and just does sort of a climb to create some space. And as I come back in, then he'll dive in. But then on the inbound run, I'm having to pull power way back on the Corsair so that he's not going well above 200 and having to fight the control. So we can have beautiful banana passes and you know make both planes look really good. We just can't be going that fast. You have to adapt to the situation. When we do a, you know an air show routine and we'll do a little mock dog fight and I start off by chasing Charlie around and then when we swap positions so I'm chasing him we do a turn and I actually turn inside of him so he could get behind me we choreograph that obviously on the ground but then to do it in the air it actually takes a lot of work the listeners maybe they'll understand but it takes a lot of work to choreograph the dance the air show routine with those two airplanes to make it look like we're still dogfighting because it's not a competition under different circumstances. His speed, my maneuverability, yeah. to keep them at show center, it's a lot of fun, but certainly we've had to practice that a lot to make it look good. I think everybody can appreciate the fact that, you know, the differences and everything else like that. But obviously, the whole point of the air show is to keep the airplanes visible to the public. And in order to do that, you've got to do things that are just not how they would be employed in a combat situation. So, exactly. so true. And it's kind of interesting. You know, you talk about the differences, especially between these two airplanes, the average sort of late teens, early twenties male in world war II was about five, eight, you know, 130 to 140 pounds, you know, at six, one and two ten, I'm slightly above that. Mark is a little more diminutive. I think we'll say it really is to see the differences in the cockpit. The Corsair is big and spacious. We could put a mini fridge in there and still have room left over. The interesting thing with the Zero, and if you think of those sort of dimensions for the average American back in the 30s and 40s, these are people growing up 
and developing physically through the Great Depression. So, right, you know, less food security and nutrition and all that. The Japanese just in general were shorter and not as heavy. So I get in the zero sitting on the parachute. I can't wear a helmet because the height is just too, and that makes plenty of sense. What's interesting is you would think the reach to the panel would be the same. You'd think I'd be sort of crammed in there. What I found so interesting is although it's vertically challenged, the panel actually feels like it's a little longer than, you know, a Mustang or a Corsair. You know, you reach your hand out and the Corsair, you know, the knob or the switcher or whatever is right there. The Zero, you actually have to lean forward a little bit to make it happen. So to me, that was really interesting to see, you know, why you had that difference in design. Oh, interesting. Well, let's go back and talk about what it took to learn what it was to fly the Zero. And Sean Jones kind of wanted to know what kind of pilot skill was required or if it's just like anything else. Oh, there's no one in the world besides Charlie and Ike that could fly the Zero. It's just too hard. It <laughs> takes too much skill. Unfortunately, yeah, it's impossible. It's a good niche to find. Yeah, Sean, you know, if his lips are moving, he's lying, so don't trust him. Uh, you know, I'll tell you, the Zero is probably the easiest of the planes we fly. It's very honest. It's very forgiving, low to all speeds. You know, the gear is a little bit of a concern, and certainly the way it operates To be on the ground with no squat switch or weight on wheel switch, to have to move the flaps, and that means first bringing that gear handle up. The first couple of times you're like, oh, and boy, you make sure it goes right into that neutral because you go beyond that and you'll have a lot of explaining to do. But, John, it really is an easy plane to fly. I think the advantage that Mark and myself and our friends who are lucky enough to fly these kind of planes is we have much more overall flying experience and certainly a ton of tailwheel experience. So the real challenge with these planes is less the general flying skills, but it's that eye-hand-feet coordination that tailwheel airplanes require. I had a little tiny bit of time in Cubs, and then I had a Russian Yak-52 TW tailwheel, and then I moved into the Avenger, which, you know, although a big, big airplane was also an honest airplane. You know, the Spitfire is kind of a challenge just because it's such a tight cockpit. You can't see anything for landing. The Mustang's very honest, but it can bite hard and quick, and you have much higher approach speeds. You know, when the plane's going slow, you have a lot of time to assess the situation, and that's where the Zero, I think, is easiest. It's interesting because Mark was fortunate enough to fly a Messerschmitt 109, which has a reputation of being very dangerous on the ground where, the, you know, they'd lost more planes on takeoff and landing than in combat. And he flew a two-seater and on his first flight, of course, comes in with the German pilot in the back telling him to be careful. And Mark, being the show-off, rolls it on with perfection. And I think the German was sort of a little chagrined that this American came over and showed him how to fly this plane. But, I mean, Mark, how would you assess the Zero compared to what you've had to fly? I agree with you. It is... With the wide stance and all the power and the slow speeds, it really is a well-behaved airplane on the ground for takeoff and landing. It's got good rudder authority, good stance on the runway. It tracks straight ahead. So I'll come in and we'll put the gear down. And then I usually just land it with half flaps. You don't even need full flaps. And I'm coming in at 100 touching down at 75 and it's just as docile and track straight. So it's really a pretty simple airplane as far as the ground handling of it. So uh, it's probably 
as far as everybody will ask, what's your favorite airplane? I, I think just because of my time in a P-51, and it's like home to me. My second favorite is the Zero because it's like taking the extra 300 out for a spin. It's a lot of fun. It's a reliable, powerful airplane. And so you, you can go out and have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Charlie, would you say the same? I agree. I love that Corsair. The P-51 is very refined. Cross-country, the P-51 is hard to beat. It's sort of like the Cadillac versus the muscle car. And then we throw the Zero in there, and whoever is flying the Zero cross-country knows the other people are hating on them because you know we really don't want to be going faster than 180 or 190 in the Zero. Otherwise, the stick forces become a lot. For the other airplanes that are typically cruising at 230 or so, that's almost like hanging on the prop. So, you know, you make sure you go out into in-trail sort of uh, formation because otherwise you're going to get nasty looks from the guys you're flying with. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Well, we talked about the range capability and how long range it did have given the size of the aircraft and the lightness of the of the overall airframe and everything like that. You know, standard kind of weaponry, a 20 millimeter, a couple 7.7 millimeter cannons and guns and whatnot on there. Uh, fairly light bomb load. Obviously, it's probably more an air-to-air kind of platform than it is an air-to-ground platform. We talked about the ease of landing or how the landing was, relatively speaking. Employment-wise, not that you guys are firing the gun or anything like that, but it's a light airplane. You know, Typically, things that are lighter may or may not be a little more twitchy or, or a little less stable at certain airspeeds. Would you guys feel like if you had to go employ this in combat, it would be a very stable platform to shoot from or not really? It certainly would be stable. I think the challenge that most people would face is you have a very close-in range weapon with the 7.7, the 30 caliber, and then you have a long-range 20-millimeter cannon that has a very slow cycle rate, and the ballistics are very different from a machine gun round, right? Quite frankly, that 30-millimeter like Warren was talking about on your last podcast with the Hawker Hurricane, you know, they'd have six of those 303s, the same caliber, and you would just have to pour a ton of lead into your opponent to cause some damage. Yeah. Where you look at the 50s that we employed in our aircraft, it didn't take much to shoot down a zero. So if you're a zero pilot, you know, without any aided gun sights or anything, The ability to switch your mindset between the ballistics, the trajectory of the 7.7 round versus the 20 millimeter. And of course, the 20 millimeter, you don't have nearly as many rounds. So I think the 7.7 was the longer range sort of let's try to create some damage. And then the 20 millimeter had to be get in close and it'll do a whole lot of damage when you get hit with one of those. So it was a, a unique platform in that regard. But I think for the most part, for really all fighter pilots, there were some naturals that had deflection shots, you know, a thousand yards out that couldn't miss if they tried. The vast majority of fighter pilots, it was the shoot when you see the white of their eyes routine, get right on their tail. Make the target as big as possible. That's right. All right. Awesome. Well, we like to ask about what other countries may have flown it. And as far as I'm aware, just the Japanese, nobody else got their hands on it other than us probably to do some testing post-war and maybe even during the war to see how it was uh, designed and whatnot. And that actually, Trevor, just as a quick, interesting point, yeah, we were very fortunate. So during the Battle of Midway, the Japanese loved very complex operational plans. The Aleutian Islands campaign really was just a feint to draw our attention away from Midway. So where we got 
very fortunate was that there was a zero pilot who was attacking Dutch Harbor up in the Aleutians and he sustained damage. He lost oil. There was a very remote island that I forget the name of that he and his wingmen saw this flat open area and came in to land. And, you know, Mark's going to grimace when I say this. And the first thing he did was put his landing gear down because he thought it was flat field. It turned out to be a swamp. So he touched down in about four feet, flipped the plane over and his two wingmen, you know, the standing orders was strafe the plane and destroy it. His wingmen weren't sure that he wasn't still alive. And so they disregarded orders and flew off. And about a month later, we recovered it and took it back to North Island and everybody tested it. The British came and tested it. So we quickly found out strengths and weaknesses. He found out that indeed, as Mark and I know, it turns to the left more easily than it turns to the right, especially at higher speeds. And we got that information out to the fleet very quickly to say, you know, here are the strengths and weaknesses. So the fact that we were able to get in there and recover that aircraft was a huge intelligent coup. And that's a great segue into strengths and weaknesses. And so I'll let each of you guys kind of provide me your, not so much strengths and weakness, because I think we can read about those in the books and, and everything like that, but I guess your favorite features or the opposite of the spectrum of things that you wish maybe they would have done something better with. And it's not like putting GPS in there or anything like that, but Mark, I'll let you uh, lead it off on that one. I think one of the things I wish they had done differently is when I picked up the airplane and I flew it cross country back to the East Coast. The first thing that I realized was there was a bungee cord wrapped around the gear handle. You know, there was a little bit of a joke of what that was for, but I didn't really believe it until I went on the cross country. I found out what that bungee cord was for. So you run out of forward trim as you accelerate and you're in a cruise, you run out of forward trim and your arm gets very tired very quickly on a two or three hour cross country flight holding about two PSI of forward pressure. What that bungee cord was for is you wrap it around the stick and you hook it underneath the uh, dash by the rudder pedals, and then you can adjust it by putting another wrap on it to get it to go forward a little more. So The Murphy autopilot. (laughs) I've actually taken pictures of this and shown it to my friends. And you can get that airplane with that bungee cord wrapped around the stick to be almost hands-off autopilot for two hours and you don't do a thing. It's one of those things that you'd laugh at if you ever knew that we're flying this Japanese Zero with a bungee cord wrapped around the stick, you know, at 10,000 feet (laughs) going on a cross country. (laughs) And necessity is the mother of all inventions. That works. Yeah. And it works very well. All right. On the flip side, what's like the thing you like the most or you love the most about the airplane? Oh, absolutely. The power to weight ratio. Absolutely. The maneuverability. It is like flying, you know, a Pitts or a extra 300. It's You could go out and it's just like, wow. It's unbelievable that I get to fly this thing, that it's this maneuverable. That's cool. Charlie, what you got? Well, I think on the negative, and it's not even a negative because we're taking it in the context of the time period, right? But unlike later planes, it's all very manual. You have to watch temperatures and pressures, the oil cooler door, the cow flaps, all that stuff is manual. They're just hand cranks. and, And as Mark alluded to, the landing gear and flap system is less than elegant. Not that we had human factors engineering like we have today. So in that regard, it's kind of neat because very few planes are like that. I really don't have many negatives other than maybe the brakes and the landing gear aren't great for the way we operate it. I love the maneuverability and the power to weight ratio. To me, I think what makes it so special is the history and the rarity of it and the fact that we 
get to fly it. My grandfather served on the USS Wisconsin, a battleship in the Pacific. One of the trophies he brought home was a case, the bottom of a five inch shell. And on that, it said that it was, uh, and I think it was Leyte Gulf, maybe that they you know, had the battle, but he said, oh, no, it wasn't. So he says on the bottom, Okinawa, it was fired at a Japanese Zeke, as they called it. April 16th, 1945, it missed. <laughs> and, you know, for me to sit here and to be able to fly a real Japanese zero, I wish I could have a conversation with my grandfather and share that difference, that history. So everything that Mark and I get to fly, as you know, from you know your days flying the fast movers, so much of it is you're focused on the task of flying. You know, when we have a beer afterwards or sitting around the hangar telling tall tales, to be able to fly these planes, to be able to fly one of them, let alone, you know, four or five, six of them, to be able to compare a Corsair to a Zero. It is so unique and special. I love the history of it. I read a lot about this. In fact, when we owned the Avenger, there was a wonderful book called Intrepid Aviators, and it was about an Avenger squadron off the USS Intrepid. And I wrote the author, and it really was an homage to his father, who was one of the pilots. And I wrote to him and said, you know, I'm so fortunate to fly one of these planes. And he described with the Avenger, it can be, you know, four or five hands needed to start the engine. And sometimes it doesn't behave and it backfires or it makes you look foolish. And, you know, as a brand new ensign on the flight deck with all these people watching, you didn't care about the upcoming battle. Your only thought was, please, God, don't let me mess up this engine start. (laughs) And I laughed with him and he actually put me in touch with the last surviving pilot in that squadron who lived over in Long Island. And to be able to make that connection of the people who've sat in those seats before Mark and I, um, you know, the, the Spitfire that we fly was actually shot down during the Battle of Britain over France. And we have pictures of two German soldiers sitting on it. For us to be able to sit in those seats, it's just awe-inspiring. Yeah, I would feel the same way if I was in your shoes. So that's a great segue towards, I think, you know, the end of our time. But Mark, what do you have? So just to sort of sum up what Charlie said, too, is there's days that it's all business. We have an event to go to or we have something that's got a timetable and you're focused on the mission. Then there's other days that we're in a cross country and I look out and there's four other warbirds on my wing. And, you know, we might be in an hour or two cross country. So that gives you time to relax and think. And there's times where I've sat out and I looked out and I was like, how did this ever happen to me? How in the world am I sitting here looking out at a Corsair, a Spitfire, a B-25, you know, the Japanese Zero or Mustang off my wing or P-40? Like, that's when you really get the goosebumps and the chills and think, wow, these things are not just airplanes that we're out flying, having a good time. These things are why we have the freedoms we have today. So I'm sure Charlie and I have those moments that we pinch ourselves and say, we are probably some of the luckiest guys in the world to be able to do this. That's a great way to uh, just live, you know, be fortunate, be thankful for the the opportunities you do have and, and everything else like that. And I can only imagine what it looks like to look off to your right and left side and see all this amazing history flying right there. I was fortunate enough to fly F-16s and got to fly plenty of formations with those in my periphery, but I'm very jealous of what you guys have been able to do and uh, very thankful that you guys are willing to do it. This is a great place to wrap up this episode. And I think 
both of you would be perfect happy hour candidates to uh, sit back and just talk about flying the airplane and everything else like that. So we'll probably have you guys back on. I appreciate everything you guys have done to keep that aviation history alive and well. It is a labor of love, right? To put yourself out there. And again, some of the risks that come with your reputations and everything associated with uh, flying these amazing machines. But thank you both for everything that you guys have done. And Mark, I'll start with you. I asked you guys a bunch of questions. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that you feel like is worthwhile to talk about the Zero? Actually, I think we've covered a lot of what Charlie and I get to experience in the Zero. And I really appreciate you inviting us to be on your podcast to join you today. You're doing a great thing. You're keeping the history alive and you're bringing in pilots that can describe what it's like to fly these things. So I think you're doing a great job and I think we've covered everything that we have to say today. I'm sure there's more and there's always Always more, more. but I I think you did a great job. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's always nice to get the positive feedback. I know the listeners are going to love this episode. And so Charlie, I'll put it to you. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure that the listeners are aware of, or at least a, a lead into maybe a future conversation about it? I would suggest that if they have a chance, there's so many wonderful aviation museums throughout this country. And a lot of them sponsor air shows that Mark and I go to. Go visit your local aviation museum, see what they have, read the plaques, learn the history. And then if you get a chance, go to those air shows. We love performing in front of people because we get to share the airplanes and and meet some really wonderful folks. To go to the Smithsonian and see those planes is spectacular. To go to one of these museums that actually fly the airplane, you go into the hangar and there's an oil pan and it's dripping. I mean, that's life right there. And to hear those planes fly, and I think... Warren even described the difference of doing flybys in a Spitfire and the Hawker Hurricane and how that exhaust note is so different between two airplanes with the same exact engine. You know, come out and hear us fly the Zero and then hear the roar of that mighty Corsair and it brings it all alive and brings home what the great men and women of this country did building these aircraft to preserve our heritage. That's well said. Well said. Gentlemen, thank you so much again for your time today. It's been uh, a really enlightening experience for me. I know the listeners are going to love hearing about this. And like I said, I'm so grateful for you two for keeping the flying history alive. Thank you for coming on the show. And we look forward to talking to you all both uh, again in the future. Thanks so much. Thanks, Trevor. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Trevor. Really appreciate what you're doing. Welcome back, everyone. My thanks again to Mark and Charlie for sitting down to talk with me. These guys are the ultimate pros. And I'll tell you what, they are busy. So I appreciate them carving out the time to make this happen. Now, as I mentioned, we had a ton of listener questions. I mentioned it before the interview started and you guys submitted so many that I was unable to just get them all in there. So I asked Charlie to come back and help answer some questions and he was gracious enough to do so. First is from Wes Quinlan. Wes actually is an engine mechanic on our friend of the show, Panchito, the B-25. He asks, I seem to remember reading a Smithsonian publication that the Zero design was taken from the Howard Hughes H1 racer. Is that true? And Charlie answers, well, Wes, I too seem to recall hearing something similar, but have no definitive source proving one way or another. Some of that may stem from other examples, such as the Nakajima L2D. It was a twin engine transport, which was one of the real workhorses for the Japanese. And it is better known by its allied codename Tabby. It was a license-built Douglas DC-3, And although I suspect the license fees probably stopped being paid after the war, he also goes on to add, he believes the Pratt & Whitney sold engines to Japan before the war and that some of the engineering was incorporated into Japanese designs. Kind of makes sense there. However, my gut feel 
is that the A6M was truly an indigenous design. The Mitsubishi A5M, the predecessor to the Zero, was the frontline aircraft of the period for the Japanese. And when the requirements for the A6M were issued, Nakajima did not compete for the contract, believing that what was being asked was just not possible to create. And Mitsubishi obviously proved them wrong. And like all nations during the 1930s, the Japanese were closely monitoring what other nations were developing. And in fact, Admiral Yamamoto crisscrossed the United States during his time in the States while studying at Harvard. And during his postings to Washington as a naval attache, he was able to appreciate what the war-making capability of the United States industry had and it definitely would have when mobilized. And that was hence his belief that Japan needed quick victories within six to eight months in order to bring the U.S. to the negotiating table. Given the very opening exchange of visits and ideas, I would not be surprised if some design or engineering knowledge was shared between Hughes and his team. Wes, please do give my best to Larry and the rest of the Panchito team. Larry's a true gentleman and you all do fantastic work with Panchito. All right, our next question, actually next two questions are from Sean Jones. And he asks, it looks like there are a bunch of zeros in Japan, but none are flyable. Do they not fly their warbirds over there? And Charlie answers, Sean, my understanding is that there are about 10 or so zeros on display in Japan, but as you pointed out, none are flying. So he asks, if any of you listeners have any other knowledge on the subject, please pass it along. And we'll uh, make sure that we pass that over to Charlie if uh, you guys have anything different there. And Sean also asked about how much did Japanese doctrine enhance or detract from the effectiveness of the aircraft? Charlie responds, this is a great question, Sean. And his belief is that Japanese doctrine, strict obedience to hierarchy, and unquestioned cultural conformity was a significant negative influence on the outcome of the war. This may sound crazy, but I suspect that Japan lost the war almost as much as the Allies won it. We hear about inter-service rivalries in many countries, but those are unmatched by the corrosive and cancerous conflict which existed between the Imperial Japanese Navy and the Army. Just one many example is that the Navy leadership did not share the critically important facts of the losses from the Battle of Midway and disastrous implications they had to the war effort with their counterparts in the army or even with the emperor's staff. Many Japanese A6M zeros flew without radios, which caused them to miss opportunities or to help fellow pilots in trouble. And most pilots flew without parachutes. Their search and rescue capabilities were being rescued, uh, were practically non-existent. And allied pilots uh, shot down, even if in the vast expanse of the Pacific, had a reasonable chance of being rescued and returned to flight. Thus, this was not true for the Japanese pilots. Their earlier cadre of pilots were exceptionally well-trained, but they conformed strictly to doctrine and tactics, and that worked well in the beginning of the war, but cost them dearly later on. Americans like Claire Chenault, Jimmy Thatch, Butch O'Hare, and others quickly adapted and improvised in order to maximize the strength of their aircraft and help offset the weakness. They learned to fight the enemy on their terms, not on his terms. And in fairness, the high-scoring Japanese aces who survived the war have said that they also ignored doctrine once in the field and worked hard to get new pilots to think for themselves as the situation dictated. But I gathered that free thinking did not apply to many Japanese pilots. And it is well worth reading Dan Knight's book, The Last Zero Fighter, and Henry Sakaida's book, Winged Samurai. And our next question comes from Robert Hoserman. And he asked, during kamikaze missions, were the aircraft equipped with just enough fuel to reach the target to mitigate the number of pilots chickening out and flying home? Charlie answers, Robert, the concept of crashing your aircraft into the enemy if you were seriously injured or your plane was badly shut up was common from the start of the war. There are examples of this and what was thought to be this mentality during the early battles, including at the Battle of Coral Sea, Solomon Islands, New Guinea, etc. Dying in sacrifice for your country and the emperor was a great honor, and it was the same devotion which drove most bonsai charges. And while the Allies found it to be repugnant, it was expected in the Japanese military and there were no cultural stigma attached to it. And with that said, the early kamikaze pilots who flew out of the Philippines were well-trained pilots. Many missions were launched not knowing exactly where the enemy ships were located and routinely returned having found nothing. 
But my understanding is that there was enough fuel for return flights during that time period because commanders were aware that the chances of not finding the enemy was substantial. And I've read that when the order came, most of the commanders and senior flight leads thought abhorrent and wasteful. And often I've read where the pilots were all volunteers. However, culturally, when asked to volunteer, everyone is expected to do so. Not doing so would be a loss of face and honor, and there was a massive societal pressure at play. As the attacks progressed, there was no doubt that they were extreme effective and put enormous pressure on the U.S. Navy. And later on, around April or June of 1945, the Japanese launched hundreds of kamikaze attacks. They were quickly running out of trained pilots, and my understanding is that many of the kamikaze pilots had only training to take off and fly straight and level. They had to be guided by a scout plane because they had no navigational training. And at that point, Japan was starved of fuel and it was a precious commodity. If they knew the location of the U.S. ships, I would not be surprised at all if the planners were loaded with enough gas for only a one-way trip. I have read that there were pilots who aborted several kamikaze missions due to feigned engine problems and survived the war, but most pressed on even in terror because self-sacrifice had become normalized in that time in Japanese society. And our next question comes from Sven, and he asks, all right. In the history books, the Zero is often described as a big surprise and that no one had suspected that the Japanese at the time, often portrayed as inferior in technical skills, had such a strong fighter. But was it really? Its combat debut was in 1940 in China, where any number of international combatants like the AVG, the American Volunteers Group, might have seen it. And Charlie goes on to answer, Sven, that's a great question. The first group of Flying Tigers did not depart from the U.S. until the summer of 1941, and their first mission defending Kunming was not until December of 1941. I think, in fact, it was late December after Pearl Harbor, but please correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is that we knew about the Nakajima KI-27 Nate from its earlier deployment in China, but the A6M really took everyone by surprise. There was also confusion because the Japanese employed the Nakajima KI-43 Hayabusa, which we all called the Oscar, and which looked very similar to the Zero. There's no doubt that there was prejudicial or racist attitudes at play on both sides. And early attitudes, as you pointed out, convinced the U.S. military that the Japanese were inferior in many ways, including when it came to technology and engineering. The Russo-Sino War of 1904-1905 should have taught us otherwise. The cultural stereotypes are clearly evident from the publications at the time. The Japanese were also very racist, thinking they were superior to all other races, including Asians. And to their detriment, they thought Americans were soft and lazy, lacking a warrior spirit. General Chenault's early reports sent back to Washington detailing A6M0 were routinely dismissed. Partly, I suspect, because he was no longer in the U.S. Army and now considered an outsider. And I think Boat can share with us how much attitudes have changed and how much time he spent learning about adversary capabilities and tactics. And I will say, from Boat's perspective, that is absolutely true. I've read General Chenault's book, and that is described in there as well, that same mentality. That is absolutely the case these days. The world is a very different place, but I think the lessons learned from history are, are well learned by our current military leadership we have to kind of take everybody seriously, whether we think they have the capability or not. Uh, it's kind of owed to our benefit to take everyone seriously there. All right. One more question here from Gary Frey. From what I've read, the F4U Corsair had really good success against the Zero in combat. How much of that is attributed to pilot skill and tactics versus pure aircraft performance? So Charlie goes to answer, Gary, I love your question and the insight it provides. It had everything to do with pilot skill and training, as well as tactics. Claire Chenault knew early on that you could not get into a turning fight with a Zero in a P-40, and that was just as true for the Corsair. Jimmy Thatch knew that same was true for the Wildcat as well. The Corsair and Zero are radically different in terms of performance. When Mark flies the Corsair, I turn circles inside of him all day long, just like we talked about in the interview. And if I'm in the Corsair, he does the same to me. 
What gives the Corsair such an advantage is that it controls the fight because it can disengage. Its speed allows it to dictate the terms. Once in a fight, the Zero does not have the speed to get away. The Corsair can make a high-speed slashing attack and use its speed to create distance. The Corsair pilot then can elect to make another attack once he is in a favorable position or disengaged to fight another day. And when in the attack, the Corsair has enormous firepower combined with great armor protection. I love flying the Zero, but if I had to go into battle, I would choose the Corsair every time because I can control the fight. And I will say, having some armor probably helps you know, feel a little more comfortable going into that fight as well, as we kind of discussed in the interview. All right. Well, that will do it for the uh, laundry list of questions you guys asked. I thank you all for the uh, inputs and everything. One thing we didn't cover in the interview either was the notoriety aspect of things. And obviously, I think everybody's aware and familiar with the movie Tora, 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 as well as the air show demonstration by the same name. But again, those are all primarily T6 knockoffs that you saw in the movie. And so with so few actual zero aircraft flying in real life, you know, we're kind of forced to either go CGI or use the T6 to make the one look like a zero. But as well, there are a few great books, and Charlie mentioned those in the questions as well. There's one called Inferno Retribution by Sir Max Hastings. There's one called Conquering Tide, Pacific Crucible, and Twilight of the Gods by Ian Toll. It's a trilogy. There's another one called Intrepid Aviators by Gregory Fletcher. There's the book Arsenal of Democracy, which I think we've mentioned before, and that's by A.J. Biome. There's Race of Aces by John Brunning, and then there's Rising Sun by John Tolan. So a laundry list of uh, historical references and books and movies and everything else that you guys can go check out along the way. So Charlie, thank you again for helping out with that. Mark and Charlie, thank you guys both for joining me on the show. It was an absolute blast. I learned an absolute ton and we will absolutely get you guys back on the show for at a minimum, some kind of happy hour or a revisit of this or any of the other uh, Japanese warbirds along the way, because you guys are a wealth of knowledge. Hey, everyone. From back on our commemorative Air Force episode a couple of months ago, we spoke with Mo from Warbird Digest magazine. And as promised, I've brought him back onto the show to touch base and get an update on what's going on over at the magazine. So, Mo, how you been? What's been going on? Well, sure. Thank you. First of all, thank you for uh, having me a couple of months ago, me and Leah, uh, on behalf of, I guess, the entire Warbird community would like to thank you guys because uh, it's great that we have this, uh, I guess, uh, connection between modern and old aviation. Yeah. I think it's great. The first episode was great. We received a lot of positive feedback. So I appreciate that very much. What's going on? Uh, first of all, the magazine, Warbird Digest, issue 93 is being delivered as we speak. I think it's an issue that really will be of interest for your uh, listeners. We are featuring on the cover, we have a beautiful hurricane, but inside the magazine, we are featuring a MiG-23 flogger that is uh, flying in uh, Texas, is one of the six that has been purchased by Dan Filer. One is flying and the other five are being restored. So we have actually, I will say, three parts story, including a Red Eagle pilot that flew the MiG-23, the very detailed, in-depth article about the type. It's a master of an aircraft, and uh, I can't even imagine what it takes to keep that thing flying. Just crazy. You know, sometimes in our community, you hear about these projects and these flying airplanes that you just can only wonder how in the world are they making it happen. But yeah, yeah. A lot of dedicated folks. And uh, so, anyway, that's a very interesting article that will really be of interest of the younger crowd that listen to your show. I believe it's still flying actually in uh, some of the Eastern Bloc countries. So mm. it's pretty cool to read. Then we have, of course, as I mentioned, the cover 
we have the Dakota Territory Air Museum Hawker Hurricane, an aircraft that was almost destroyed by a hurricane and was savage and completely restored now. And it's flying again, beautiful, beautiful aircraft in the Royal Air Force colors. In specifically, it was designed and the paint scheme is dedicated to L.C. Wade, uh, World War II ace from Texas that flew with the Royal Air Force first, then the U.S. Air Force. So great article. And for the first time, it's not really the first time, but we are experimenting a new, uh, I guess, editorial style or line, if you will, featuring an aircraft and then featuring one of the pilots who flew this aircraft. So we're really combining the historical part by featuring the history of the pilot and his life and his obviously flying career combined with the warboard that we are featuring on the magazine. For our British friends, we are covering the aircraft restoration company and their projects. It's a great, as the name says, uh, restoration company out of Duxbury Airfield uh, in England. Sam Worthington Lees wrote the article, and Sam is a World War pilot who is also restoring a Hawker Typhoon, and we'll get to it in a second. Again, great feature-rich issue. We also have a section called the Navigator, which essentially where to go, what to see type of uh, section. In this issue, we are featuring Detroit. There is a little column about the Yankee Air Museum and Henry Ford Museum. Okay. And then we have obviously the flight log, which covers all the different updates in the Warbird community that are going on around the world. Sounds packed full of fascinating details on things that, you know, again, most people don't get to see because all you see is what the airplane's doing at the air show. And that's kind of your only contact with it. So that's really great. And obviously we're, we're heading into the holiday season. And so are you guys running any promotions or anything like that for uh, potentially our listeners to jump on and take advantage of as we head into uh, the holiday season? Well, we have um, what we call bundles, okay, which are always great to have. And, you know, the two bundles are always the most popular and Corsair and P-51. So if you have a Corsair lover, go on warboarddigest.com on top where they say shop, click on it and then click on bundles. And you have three issues dedicated to Corsairs that are obviously flying and another bundle dedicated to the early P-51 models. I think that's a great way to give someone who loves either a Corsair or the P-51. As I mentioned uh, to you, I think in the last show, or maybe not, if I'll do it now, we are working on a great project, which is a book about the Baba Black Sheep TV show, which we all loved growing up. And our own Stephen Chape, who's one of our writers, has been researching the book, told to the existing still-living actors, told to the pilots who flew the airplanes, and track down every single Corsair that was in the TV show that is still flying today, as well as the Japanese aircraft, which are obviously T-6s and Harvards converted to look like Japanese aircraft. So it's a book that's coming out next September right. on the 21st, which is the anniversary of the pilot of the show. The pilot was broadcasted on September 21st, the actual first episode was broadcasted two days later on the 23rd. So on September 21st, the book will be released. On warbirdsnews.com, we have a link where people can go pre-order the book. So probably will be a good Christmas present for Christmas 2022 rather than 2021. But since we just kind of announced after I spoke to you, I thought it was something that worth mentioning for your listeners. So Yeah, no, that's something great to look forward to for next year. And 
I know uh, all of our listeners have been enjoying all of the content that we've had so far, and you've been our connecting point for uh, the Hawker Hurricane from last month and actually for this month as well. Again, thank you for that and look forward to future collaborations, which means we'll have you back here in a couple months with maybe another update on where you guys stand with the book progress and anything else that you guys have coming up. So Mo, hey, thanks so much for stopping by once again. And we'll look forward to uh, talking to you in the coming year. All right. Sounds good. Thanks for having me. Well, this has been a great look back and I've got a ton of great stuff lined up for the Warbird series in the coming months. So in order to get that to you guys, I better get out of here and get started on it. Thanks again to each of you out there that continue to show up and listen each and every week. And to our Patreon subscribers who continue to help affording us the opportunity to bring on these amazing guests and talk about all the fun fighter pilot stuff, we thank you. This will probably be the last time uh, we'll be airing the typical pre and post interview announcements and listener questions and whatnot until probably shoot January. So I wish uh, everyone a happy uh, holidays, a happy new year. On behalf of everyone here at the show, thanks again. We'll see you all in December for Bomber Month and maybe even a bonus or two along the way. But until then, get high, get fast, and do some good work. We'll see you. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.